Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Telegraph Rugby podcast. You're joined as ever by myself, Ben Coles, and I'm here with Charlie Morgan. Hi, Charlie. Good morning, Colsey. And by Charles Richardson. Hello, Charles. Good morning, Colsey. Charles, you've got a lovely uh, backdrop behind you. Where in the world are you? I am currently in Rose after the match yesterday. I, I, I bring you Roman sunshine. I'm currently sitting 500 meters from the from the Stadio Flaminio, their their former stadium, and um, yeah, I think I've just got a double espresso just on its way. That sounds fantastic, to be honest. So, Charles, you were in Rome and you were in Twickenham. Charlie, you, you managed to roll out of bed to pop over to Twickenham down the road, which is very good. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and I was at home on the sofa with a beer, uh, praying that my newborn son would uh, continue to sleep throughout both matches, which I'm delighted to say he did on Saturday. So that was a which real we, win. Which we disgustingly didn't didn't acknowledge last week. Massive congratulations to new dad Ben Coles. Oh, you're too Ten kind. days in. You're too kind. He'll be, uh, he'll be covering sail against Newcastle on the Friday night before we know it. There is lots to discuss after that open weekend of the Six Nations. So let's get cracking. Three Six Nations matches and three away wins. I think I read for the first time ever on the opening weekend, which is quite a uh, quite a fact, actually. Can you just give me a quick highlight from the weekend before we dive more into the games? John, starting with you, what was your what was your highlight? I, I'm gonna go with Gregor Townsend's answer to a question in a presser about Duan van der Merwe's first try, the mad kick return where he beat five players, maybe, maybe even six. Um, but Gregor Townsend got asked about it, beamed, just a huge, huge, lovely grin. And he said, wasn't it just like watching Jonah Logan rugby on the PlayStation? And you think there are, there is so, there's so much needle in these games. There's so much kind of, so many hot takes afterwards, so much kind of anger when losing sides and um and then but just Craig Talton's answer there just exuded just real uh a real innocence, which I just absolutely, absolutely loved. I burst I burst out laughing, kind of just mainly at his demeanour, but it was just lovely. When we do the uh, rugby gaming podcast at some point in the future, we'll have to remember that. Um Charles, what yeah. about you? What was what was your favourite highlight? It was an easy one, actually. Uh, easy one. That, that, there's a, there was a first-half Italian attack in Rome in that, in that narrow loss to France yesterday, in that brave, brave loss to France yesterday. The Canone brothers in full flow, the sort of most... the best famous play fluidity I've ever seen from an Italian team. They've, you know, they've always relied on individual brilliance or pretty forwards. But, but yesterday, you know, they had cohesion, they had organisation... And, and then they had that silk on top. Um, they all seem to be singing off the same song sheet, and uh, they really caused France problems. 
really cause France problems. I, I, I still maintain I don't think France were that poor, and Italy were excellent. Yeah, they were. They certainly were. I think it, for me, it probably probably two quick ones. Firstly, might have been um, Telegraph columnist Serena McGeekin's coat on ITV, which I was just not ready for, and, and it was absolutely, absolutely fantastic. I think I think it might have been Hugo Monnier who said that that is definitely um, a, a Christmas present, which is belatedly being put to good use, and it just happened to be on national TV. Action gauge. Action Gage, Action Gage. And, and he, he wasn't alone because um, Princess Anne in the stands in the first half was wearing some really impressive sort of visor sunglasses, they looked like, which is, as a couple of people said to me, looked as though she should have been fielding first or second slip, which I really enjoyed. <laughs> she really did look the part. And, and just a quick on through one, it's probably Andy Kapowalski's finish against France, the little stop and go, just the, just rooted Gregory Aldrich for half a second in allowed him to dive over into the corner. Mainly because it's underlined to me that he's not a, sort of a one-off fluke after that try against Wales last year. Like he really is quite he's quite special. So those that we enjoyed over the weekend, but I think we should start thinking about England and sort of moving into that discussion. So let's focus a bit more on another famous Scottish winner that took him in the Calcutta Cup. Right, guys, you were both in Twickenham. It's the start of a new era for Steve Borthwick, but it's a similar result against Scotland to the ones Eddie Jones was suffering at the end of his time in charge. Charlie, if I just start with you, where is the main area where Scotland sort of won this game? And, and I guess also where England lost it. Oh, wow. So many. So one big cliche is that you've got to win a test match more than once. Um, we hear that quite a lot um, from players who've been around the block and you've got you to stick in and make sure that in that last quarter, even in the last 10 minutes, five minutes, that you make right decisions and you kind of get yourself over the line because you've stuck in the fight that long. This game totally epitomised that. Um, it, Scotland went ahead to look far kind of more potent, just just look more incisive because of maybe that uncertainty in England's defence, whether that's... I imagine we'll touch on uh, England's 10 12 axis at some point in on this podcast, but maybe that was partly to do with that. They managed to get in those ins. They certainly, Charles turned to me at the time and um, Scotland went over the top from the first few, few lineouts, clearly trying to access that midfield and get a bit of impetus through there. Um, I thought Scotland Scott defended brilliantly, even though, so, well, because they had, they had to do that because England put together some, some neat phase play. But they stuck in the fight, and what was most, I think, what ultimately won them the game, is a serious long, long answer to that question, is the fact that they had conviction in their attack, and eventually they stuck in the kicking exchanges for maybe the first hour, and then noticeably in the last 20 minutes, it was still close. They backed themselves to go from deep a little bit more. Ben Russell had been disrupted a few times in the game. He'd had, he made a few mistakes. But one thing he does is he never, never, never tightens up. It was him from a and Ben Young's clearance that went too long was um, fielded by Russell. Russell spins out, feeds back Kinghorn, another pass to see only two from what to allows in, allows uh, Scotland to make it up to the ten meter line. They've got um, they've got impetus. They can bounce back to the the, the touch line. They, sorry, they can go from coast to coast. Um, that's what that's what wins it. Well, that's what wins it ultimately. A really nice skills from um, from Richie Gray, Fraser Brown, Matt Ferguson. Um, putting Duan van der Merwe for an, his second um, one to try, contrasting one to try. Um, but yeah, that that conviction um, 
to back their skills, I think eventually one has got. That's a, that's as good a pass from the second row as you'll see as well from Richie Gray. As, as good a pass to to do Van der Berber for that for that match winning try. I know I know Fraser Browns was excellent, but uh, Richie Gray's just took so much more poise, so much more peripher- sort of awareness of his peripheries, the vision, the execution, the sort of decision making that all would have gone through his brain there from the second row in the whatever it was seventy fourth, seventy fifth minute after slogging it out against a, you know. Uh, a beaten but fired up England pack was stunning. It's not the worst. It's not the worst defensive read from Max Maynans on the edge either. He, he imparts a little bit of pressure. It has to be excellent from Gray. Really is. But that summed up. They've just been. It's now one in. So they've won four of the last six against England. One in one in six wins for England. Cup to cup. In each one of those games, there's common further than just being a little bit more street smart. A little bit more skillful, and that's what's that's what's won out in invariably tight game. Another tight game, and we can, we can talk about whether England's defensive lapses were really glaring. And you wonder whether that's almost more encouraging because you could sort of you would hope that really glaring lapses like Ben Curry's missed tackle on Ben White and um, Farrell chasing after um, Finn Russell before the first try they they'd be eradicated fairly easily. Um, but actually, overall. Scotland are showing the grit to stay in game and just the skill and the and the streetwise kind of nature of, of them as a team really cohesive as well they're building something and across the across the weekend we just saw the value of when the team has been together for quite a while um, you know England and Wales are the ones that are playing catch up in that regard and that they've showed just on the back of that point about um, tying together and sort of uh, how Scotland have built this gradually over a few years the last sort of play in the corner where England went for the to essentially get driving more and try and drive over for a winning try and how well Scotland defended that felt incredibly symbolic and still where England are in terms of trying to regain this sense of purpose for their set piece work up front and brought through as we as we noticed and really pride himself on that just to get people he did the best but the fact that England's more it really just spluttered in that situation, how well Scotland sort of shut it down, I thought it was a really telling moment because it showed how much further England have to go in that area and actually maybe maybe sort of revealed just actually the extent of this rebuild and how much work there is to do. Yeah, I think I think with Steve Borthwick in charge, one thing you know we we will expect is to have that variation, that effectiveness with them all and their and not just that how that you know what options they can run off that going peeling away from drives and playing into midfield the um Alice Genja's try was a real illustration of how variation can manipulate defensive and we've got a piece on that and on the website um they win a scrum penalty they they go to touch they maul they get a pen- they get a penalty because Richie Gray comes in the side and tries to stop it immediately then they go to the corner again and they look to maul suck in Scotland Ben Curry plays away to Alex Dombrap, massive gain line, and it's going to scores. They had one way to go in that last um, line out that you mentioned there, Colsey. They were always going to maul. And Scotland have just looked at it back, hopefully have a piece on online on, on Scotland's performance in a bit more detail later. Um, but they hit that maul straight away. The Grey brothers, Jamie Ritchie, and that's what, that's what stops England getting that momentum so they have to go to their phase play. And then I think I think the last the last penalty is 50-50. It's Richie Gray and I think Dempsey. I might be wrong. They're on the wrong side. They're, they're blocking clearers. Um, look, 
but Jamie Ritchie is clearly over the balls. 50-50, doesn't go England's way. You earn your luck, and Scotland did that throughout the rest of the 80s. We had um, we had a question from a colleague down in Australia, Christy Doran, just about about Borthwick, which I thought we put out there first. And he said, "Why are people more optimistic about Borthwick and willing to listen to him say that England were in a bad place in the autumn when Jones won a Grand Slam in his first Six Nations as England head coach?" Charlie, what do you make of that? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? And he and he wanted to add the stat that four tries conceded was the same as England did throughout that 2016. Um, 2016 um, tournament, which is quite a quite stark. I would say so. There's two things here. One thing is the the relative times that that they've taken over. So taking over one year from a World Cup is probably a little bit different when other sides are sort of building impetus towards that tournament. Um, Eddie Jones was at the beginning of a new cycle, and he carried over a lot of those players in England and Stuart Lancaster, as we would, as everybody I think would acknowledge, had that squad in a good place, even though their performances in 2015 won. Um, wasn't good enough. Borthwick um, is picking up the pieces from a really disjointed World Cup cycle um, and is trying to kind of get um, England back on track, whereas other sides, certainly Ireland, certainly France, certainly Scotland, certainly Italy, are um, have got that momentum. They're building really nicely. They look really cohesive. They look really as though they've got a style of play that suits them and they're, and they're working with that really well and then the other thing is really easy to get how close some of those games were in 2016 they scraped through at Murrayfield didn't they it's Jack Noll try from a really nice uh, Macabinopola circle ball um, gets them over the line there um, Grand Slam game really really tight against Ireland they were pretty convincing I want to say in, in the other games um, maybe no, and then Akarnas again was a really tight one um, so yeah um, it's 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 difficult, but I think I think that that first point was really interesting. And Steve Borthwick's come out. That was a, he gave a pretty punchy media session, very matter of fact as he always is. But just saying, look, there's so many facets of this team that are behind the eight. It's going to be me having to um, having to pick up the pieces there, and there are a lot of moving parts we've got to get right. And I think that's fair fair to say. Um, but yeah, that's and. There's also, and Christy, Christy made this point um, to me, was that it looks like England have focused on their attack kind of primarily, or they think they can get some gains there, having brought in Nick Evans, and that, and, that, and they did put together some nice base play. Um, the defensive lapses, though, as they tried to bed in um, Kevin Sinfield's system, um, cost up. We're just going to hear some audio from Steve Borthwick just reflecting on that on the game and then Charles I want to come to you just to get an idea of what it was like post-match in terms of the mood among the players and the coaches. So let's hear from Steve Borthwick now. been wiped Frank from day one. There is a lot of work to do. So to you, I don't see, when I looked at the team from the autumn and measured the team, got all the data and see we weren't good in anything. <laughs> so that was, was as frank as that. So we're trying to build some strengths in this team. Um, um there's some bits we're pleased about, some bits we're disappointed today. Now, our job is to make sure that, that we get improvement for next week. Well, you've got to be hard to score against. Now, that's, that's for money. You've got to be hard to beat. And, and we, they, we gave them, though they scored, they, and, and you can say credit to them. They took their chances really well. But I think we will improve. We will be better with Aaron. They will get those opportunities and, and we'll also shut them down if they did. Um, but I, I think there was fundamentally there was other chances we gave them 
where we relieve pressure and we shouldn't be relieving pressure on opposition the way we did it. Uh, Charles, what was it? What was he sort of like post-match? What were the players like? What was the general vibe? And not quite as disappointed and as gutted as I was expecting, actually. I think we both um, said this, Charlie, after the game, didn't we? There was obviously a lot of disappointment hanging over them because they lost at home Scotland in the opening game with, with after a really sort of optimistic, feel-good week. Uh, I think they were all brutally honest in that that was a game that they could have won. Maybe a game that on another day they should have won, really. Um, and I think that they were encouraged by certain aspects of it and that they showed enough whereby moving forward there is real hope for maybe, perhaps not the rest of the Six Nations maybe that's too soon to expect a, a drastic drastic improvements but certainly beyond you know there's a World Cup at the end of the year and I think there was enough in parts to show that you know that the Blythwick has them going in the right direction they just never get up against a, a, a much more established team they stuck in the fight for 65 minutes and then exploded through Finn Russell and through a really cohesive midfield and three-quarter um, selection who took their chances beautifully. Is, is there a more general point to be made here that the, the team that Baltic put out on, on Saturday was obviously not the ideal side that he might have had in mind, I don't know, at the start of January because if you think about it, it wasn't available didn't have Dan Kelly, you didn't have Henry Slade, and and for my money, they they would probably have been the starting uh, um, partnership in the midfield, just given how well Slade had been playing in the autumn and how well Kelly had been playing, and then also Courtney Laws in the pack in the pack as well. Do we do we think because of that, and and Charlie, I'll come to you with this first. Do we sort of need a bit more perspective there about what England produced, given that this wasn't really the team that the Baltic might have had in mind. Yeah, just to go back to 2016, um, they didn't go to Cardiff. They had Wales at Twickenham, but won 25-21 to a couple of late tries for Wales, and they and they hung on. Did they misremembered that? But yeah, some of those games were close. Was the point I was making? To go back to your question. Absolutely. Um, I think everything was set up initially to have Farrell at ten with Kelly at twelve, and to have a look at that um, partnership with the second ball player being either one of um, or either either or both of Henry Slade and. Elliot Davy, all three of those guys were injured um, within either in the last um, week of European action or in um, camp. Um, in Kenny's case, or it might be before, we're not we're not sure on that. I'm still waiting awaiting confirmation of how serious his thigh injury is. But um, our suspicion is that he might miss miss the entire tournament, if not certainly the Italy game, which is a shame because solidity I think at 12 is what they really fancied um, and Kelly knowing um, one of the one of the kind of things that um, Steve Borthwick kind of um, mentioned that betting into Sinfield's system was a reason for those defensive errors and I think um, with Kelly there you'd have maybe had that cohesion it was Ian on Twitter that mentioned that uh, Kelly's absence was um, potentially a bigger setback than we might have um thought at the time and I think I agree with him although there are flashes there were flashes from as we keep saying that face play face play was decent and I think I think England certainly set up to play a certain way certainly played to, to stick in the kicking exchanges and they did enough as Charles mentioned that did enough um, and it's, it's so difficult 
judging, making these big sweep, sweeping judgments on the back of one-off test matches, especially when, well, not only are the margins so tight, not only is the landscape of test rugby so close and, and, you know, they swing on the smallest moments, but also that first, that two week build up to a game in the Six Nations hats. Um, just you, you, you're making these judgments on on really, really, really small margins, and that's the game. And that's the game. Yeah, and, and I agree. I agree with you. Uh, just just a button there. I agree with you, um, Colsey. I, I think he's Borthwick would have hung his hat on Farrell at ten, Kelly at twelve, Slade at thirteen. And I think once it became clear that Kelly was injured, he was sort of looking around, going, right, who's on twelve? And once he said that that wasn't going to be running to me. I think for just consistency and perhaps for just to try and keep some co- cohesion, he, he went with Smith and Farrell. But I think long term he has to be looking at Farrell at ten uh, and Smith off the bench, as as we remarked on Saturday, and as as many people have pointed out, most of England's best attacking moments came with Farrell stepping the first receiver. Mentioning Mark Smith, uh, there's a bit of audio from him afterwards in the mix zone. Let's sort of hear what he had to say about sort of how the game went and his sort of partnership with Owen Farrell, which I think everybody is still waiting to uh, truly flourish. Let's hear from Smith now. I've learned a lot the last couple of years playing for England and uh, I'm only early in my career, so uh, I'll keep keep learning. It's a massive step up from, from, from uh, club rugby, so I'll learn as fast as I can and uh, hopefully uh, keep improving as a player. I'm still young. As far as the flow you were getting, maybe in the in the lead up to Max's um, second, is that is that the best you felt it? Yeah, as I said, I felt I felt good out there. I, I wasn't thinking. I was in the game. Uh, the plan was was so drilled into us and, and so practiced that I wasn't thinking out there, and I felt good. And, and I think we we felt good as a team, but. Um, was just a couple of moments we need to keep our foot on the gas and put that team away he's in quite an interesting place isn't he at the moment do we do we think that with Italy coming to Twickenham and with Kelly seemingly out they will stick with this partnership and give it another go Charlie I'll come to you that geez I've gone round in my head about this um I think yes I think that is uh I think that's what I'm going to settle on I think they stick with it I think maybe they go with Lawrence rather than Marchant at 13 and Jack Willis at 7 and that just gives them a little bit more oomph in those areas that that Charles is talking about because at the minute as Charles says it just seems like too much has to go right um, for England to gain momentum it's too almost they're almost too it's too tricky if that makes sense that's a really kind of um, flimsy way of explaining it but it just seems like there's too too many moving parts for it to kind of to come good to come good consistently and they just need that little bit of penetration a little bit more added penetration Ellis Genge making as Charles quite rightly makes the point Ellis Genge made 18 carries and we can that's that's just so much for your loose up prop to be the keynote focal point um, of a carrier having to come around the corner from line outs is that's a lot of work it's a lot of work it's fair to say that's sorry to butt in is it fair to say that's unsustainable they had sort of at least a lot making. I don't know. I, retest. I remember somebody put it to him, or he he volunteered an answer to it when when Eddie Jones was trying to put him in the backfield as he would have done Billy Vanapola against Scotland last year. And he said, he said, oh well, I saw Ellis Gange. This is said, oh well, somebody, I saw somebody say that I might have been too tired for scrummaging. I didn't feel like that at all. 
Yeah. Um, he's going to say that. He's going to say that obviously, but you know, he's he's he will be willing to take on any any extra added responsibility that um, the team will bestow on him because he's that sort of guy. The, I think it's been a good good choice to make him vice captain and keep him as a prominent leader with the group. But that's just such a lot to be putting on him. Um, yeah, I wonder. So I I think I think with Kelly out, I think with with Daly definitely out. We wonder what's the alternative is it is it Sladen Sladen Lawrence Sladen and Marchant as if you're going to go one or either either Smith or Farrell or does he bring Manu back we know that he's not got the the ball carrying prowess of old but is his threat and his direction still greater than the alternatives it said a lot about to Lally, I think and what both of makes it him that instead of that they sort of reverted back to the two Smith and Farrell partnership as opposed to just trying to lengthen in Tom shirt with and, and with March and, and Farrell at ten and trying to give Farrell more time at ten. I think the further changes is so so much sort of shows the kind of standing that Till Lange has at the moment. And I just before we finish this section, I wanna go back to Scotland because I just want to give I wanna throw a few more flowers down by the Mervis way after his tries. That is it's the first try. The two of you, you've seen plenty of tries. It took him. Is it in your top three tries you've seen it took him, or tries you think of everything scored it took him? And if not, and if not, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you an out. If not, is it just because the tackling was not very great? <laughs> Charlie, you start. I kind of, I kind of think it's so like when, when. When tries get, I hate it when uh, when social media clips get put up and the first com- the first comment is, "Well, the fence there is crap," and you're going, "Look, <laughs> at the, look at the athleticism on the, look at the athleticism on the running. Look at, come on, celebrate, celebrate. What should we celebrate?" The, his second, as far as a um, team move, was amazing as well. And actually, I thought Max Malin's second was just. Almost, almost shocked everybody because of the efficiency and, and, and sharpness of it as well. Yeah, I'd have it in my top three. I'd agree. Uh, it was it was a sensational thing to watch, and I think what made it more sort of sensational was that England have just changed defence coach to this defensive guru who is you know proven with Leicester, Kevin Sinfield, who the players seemingly adore and have massively got on board with and seems to inspire and motivate these players around him. And in terms of um, defensive system, it might take a while to put in, but we I don't think we were expecting Scotland to sort of cut through England. Easily is probably the wrong word, but you know, so sort of comfortably really in with one player. And it, that, when that when he scored that, that was surprising and that was shocking. It made you stand up and think, "Wow, I think that was just genuinely something special." Well, I wanted to reel off a few more uh, Scotland heroes. Ben White was fantastic, and um, I thought Gre- I think Gregor Townsend really deserves credit for that selection. Um, he's rewarded domestic form there because White's been brilliant for London Irish. He was always plays with this um, chip on his shoulder. He's a real competitor. Um, Premiership debut at seventeen for Leicester. I was going back in the Telegraph annals interviewed him in 2017 just the least just one of the most unfussy uh guys it, i think he, i think i don't know whether he still is but at the time he was the youngest ever premiership debutant for leicester in history beating Ford and youngs and he um he spoke about what it meant and he and just couldn't have been less elaborate about it but he, he's he was excellent for irish against saracens in that week 
Um, Greg Townsend picking him, picking that uh, all Glasgow centre partnership paid off as well. We were, you know, really ballsy to leave Chris Harris on the bench. Um, Carl Stain, I think it's Cameron Fisher, has tweeted to say that he was quietly brilliant, which I think is right. Um, he caused a lot of trouble from those restarts, which was a big, big area of um, big issue for, for England. And we might have had another phenomenal drive about 15 minutes before the decisive one. Um, to Lotto just failing to, or was it, sorry, Stain failing to um, put in Stuart Hogg's pass um, from another kick return, which is sort of when Scotland started to turn turn the screw and get a little bit more ambitious to, to, to win the game. So just deserve all the credit. Kyle Stain, who I saw Graham Love point out on Twitter, was marked down with a try assist for the Dylan Bender Merton first try. Yeah, even though, gave, even, even though he gave him a pass, what inside Scotland's head? <laughs> All of that, <laughs> no, amazing. <laughs> With Ben White, I, I did a bit of digging and I forgot that at one point Leicester had Ben Young, Richard Wigglesworth, Ben White, and Jack Van Portley in the academy all at the same time, which is a pretty gun scrum half group, to be fair. Um, also, saw two and Van der Merwe in the petrol station in Worcester last November and thought, no cheers. I would not want to tackle you. He is so I, I, I can't really criticise England's players too much, but other that you know paid professionals um, for not being able to get him down. And and just very finally on this game, before we look ahead to Italy, um, just a quick mention for Scott Hastings. Um, amazing reaction to the second try. If you get a chance to watch the highlights back and hear it, it's brilliant. It, it's sort of on a par. It's a noise just from the soul. Really, it's sort of on a par with Gary Neville's. Um, Gary Neville's interesting noise when Fernando Torres scored against Barcelona in the Champions League about a decade ago, which I know was known as the Golgasm afterwards. And let's just say that uh, Scott Hastings produced the uh, the trigasm and leave that section there on a high note as we look ahead to Italy. Italy coming to Twickenham this weekend. After that performance on Sunday, it seems a lot more interesting. Okay, Ned, so let's talk a bit about Italy. Charles, you, you're having a lovely, lovely time in Rome by the looks of things. I saw you sitting on a double espresso just now. What did you what did you enjoy most about Italy yesterday? And I just want to tap a question onto the end of that, which we had from Alfie and from Reese, which is could Italy win two more match two matches in this six nations? I mean, it's not impossible. Two two whole is maybe a stretch but two certainly Wales have got to go to Rome and that is going to be a very very tasty encounter I mean England have to get by by Italy on Sunday and, and with, with what we saw yesterday that these guys are knowing slouches Kieran Crowley has, has overseen a remarkable resurgence and improvement there um, the front row stood up and a podcast favourite Danilo Fischetti was incredible again surrendering I reckon 20 to 30 kilos on Weenie Antonio, his opposite number, and he stood up in the scrum. You know, they had, France had Weenie Antonio at tight head with Paul Villamsa, the you know, South African beast behind him, and Fischetti, sorry, the South African ball beast, sorry, they're playing for France, um, behind him. And Fischetti really held his own with a, with a, with a little lock on his loose end side. Um, the two locks, the Canoni brothers as well, with with number eight, with uh, number eight were superb. Negri, Lamaro, as ever, just fought their socks off and stood up to a man against a world class. France, maybe alongside Ireland, the most rounded, the best balanced pack in world rugby, 
And it's only matched them. It's only matched them in the, they found two centres who uh, sort of like Scotland at international level, perhaps don't do as much of the flash and stuff, but they did a lot, a lot of the detail sort of glue that held it all together. A bit like Anne Kelly with England, really. Uh, I thought they were excellent. And then they've got guys like Menoncello and Capuazzo behind who real, real cutting edge. Um, and they were me to have the wits about the next week. And the worrying thing for Steve Borgwick and the worrying thing for England is that where Italy looked strong yesterday, uh, sort of where, in a similar areas to where England were found wanting against Scotland, I don't. I don't think. I don't think England will concede as many. It's eighteen penalties, wasn't it? Which is as, as many as in, uh, sorry more than France have ever conceded in a, in a Six Nations game. Macaulay refereeing. Premiership, we know pre- Premiership referees like that breakdown to be clean. And where France have kind of, um, well, they built their success on is going really hard at that breakdown and maybe getting kind of talked away. Jackal is getting talked away quite a lot. We always talk about um, Gregory Aldry being an absolute pest, but actually being able to able to react to what he's being told sort of in the midst of those rucks and I think I just don't think France got given that choice a lot by Carly but was very quick and kind of stern on that area of the game I don't think I don't think England will concede that many penalties at the, at the ruck because they'll be able to react to it a bit better however I do think if Italy are within a score and the hour mark we know this England side at the minute looks a little bit neurotic and what I love about this Italy side they've got They've really got that. Um, they're tenacious. They're tenacious up front, and they've got uh, they've got those really kind of industrious. Love Michele Lamara, and the, and the, and the pack is sort of built in his image, as it were, as, as captain. But that flowing phase play with um, Capuozzo kind of hitting the line as part of those kind of stacked playmakers, and Tommy Allen. That's sort of how Quinn's playing. So he's kind of he's obviously pretty comfortable with that. Garbisi's absent. Um, if they get to get some of that, if you, if if our listeners haven't watched watch the highlights of Italy's um, eventual win over Australia and some of those tries, just just how that lateral movement of their backs and like swinging late around those breakdowns into position, it's just fantastic. And I think challenging England laterally will be what they what they aim to do. And just on that French indiscipline, a cracking stat: Charles Olivon's yellow card yesterday was their first sin bin since Julien Marshall against Argentina in the 2021 Autumn Internationals. That's their first yellow card at international level, which is a staggering stat, really, considering the increase in the number of cards that we've seen on the international rugby landscape. And that comes from Sean Edwards instilling a real disciplined edge to this French team. I mean, you could see him on the coverage yesterday. He was very, very unhappy, very, very vexed and perplexed. And he would have been tearing his hair out. Would he? <laughs> Sorry, let's go. Let's go. Let's move on swiftly. Let's move on swiftly. Let's move on swiftly about that. He would have been tearing his hair out if he had it. Uh, but yeah, I'll say it. Fine. Uh, he would have been tearing his hair out. His, his, he'd have been tearing his metaphorical hair out yesterday. Um, and he was afterwards. He was unhappy. And they've got five days to put it right before they play the best team in the world and they will have to put it right and to be honest if you were to back anybody who would put it right it probably would be Sean Edwards perplexed is perplexed is bang on it's saying I've never 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 had a defence who'd been penalised like that I do think I do think it's partly maybe referees being a little bit more stringent on what France have been excellent at 
and then we and we've had this we've had this um i think i think i think it's i think it's a positive thing overall for for referees to be really stringent on on that jackler um because it's just there's just nothing worse than a kind of an illegal jackler being talked away from the ball after they already influenced the speed of the ruck um but if we know Sean Edwards we'll know that his team will adapt very very quickly but I just wonder if deep down Edwards and Gautier are actually delighted to have had that game now at the start of this year just so the side can sort of process being pretty shocking in the breakdown and not adapting and sort of have and learn from that in time for bigger fish to fry next week in Dublin and, but more importantly, at the Rebel World Cup as well, I think in terms of long-term development, it's probably quite a good feat to have that test. Um, just one more thing, and it's the Charles. I had a tweet from Adam Shaw who said, do you reckon if Garbisi starts yesterday, that Italy win that game? If they had if they're part of Garbisi starting in 10, they'd have him in the minutes. Do you reckon they see it out? I'd, I'm tempted to say maybe. I'm, I'm tempted to say yes. I mean, I wrote in my report that I thought that I, I, I think Tommy Allen is a fantastic understudy to Marcus Smith at Arlequins and Stephen Varney is a, is a perfectly respectable club scrum half, but Italy need some direction and some more authority at halfback and some greater skill. And I think if Garbisi was at 10 and they had an improved scrum half, they would have won yesterday. Yes, I, I'd happily stick my neck out and say that. Do we hope that there's some sort of Alessandro Troncon regen somewhere in Italy who's about to sort of come in. Oh, no, it's Galbisi's brother as well. Galbisi's brother. Galbisi's brother, yeah. yeah we've got Galbisi 102 at back for Italy, which would be which would be phenomenal if, if, if the scrum half um, if the scrum half version of Garbisi can, can live up to his white half brother. That would be that, that would be quite something and would, I think, genuinely make people stand up and take note of, of Italy on, on the world stage the Garbisi bros I can see the, the uh, Mario Luigi memes already and they're excellent um, in just uh, with Italy Italy being so competitive which I've got to say it is really fantastic I, I tweeted out yesterday I don't really need Italy to win this I just want them to be good I want to go into Italy matches and watch them not knowing what's going to happen and, and just to see if they're going to win I think we're, we're really getting that now, which is fantastic. Because they are now quite good, it sort of means that the, the days of, of rotating and sort of resting players or trying out some new combinations against Italy are, are kind of forgotten for now, which brings us to, to what England might do. And and I just want to ask you both about Mario Tojo and how he's playing and whether you wonder whether England might consider doing something different here. But personally, I don't think they will. And I think some of the overreactions that to his performances have been a bit hysterical given it's one game but, but can you see is there any way that England might need to change him or, or change other certain selections against it it doesn't seem like they can afford to anymore does it Charlie I'll come to you we, so what we what we heard in the build up to this game and what was kind of borne out I think by the by the selection of Chesham um, at lock was that Courtney Laws was going to be at lock um, I didn't see necessarily that that was that was um, that felt quite punchy um, but it looks like that was the way it was gonna gonna go. Um, so whether Law's coming back in and being considered as a lock with someone like Willis coming back into the to the back row too, whether that it was interesting that Lewis Ludrum was used um at the line out quite a lot um as that auxiliary kind of third jumper. Um maybe that could be the kind of 
the way Firatoji going out of the side. I can't see it. Um, I think I was just going to get if um, I'll give give an answer, then Charles can go back and I'll just go have, have a look at some stats from the game. But um, Maratoji conceded, always gets a lot of um, black for conceding penalties. He conceded two penalties, um, which is the same as Oli Chesson. Um, I think in games where England have a lot of possession, he isn't necessarily going to be as eye catching just because his defensive disruption is as is is kind of his super strength to borrow a, a Borkism. And Chesham was the more eye catching character uh, carrier. Um, there was, I think, I think Itoji was involved in the in the clear out of the Scotland penalty at the end, where obviously Scotland um, Scotland were rewarded with a penalty, but could have gone either way. Um, he's running the line out, I believe, which um, was a really, really good battle with Scotland. Um, I just, I just think maybe he's been a victim of these having these performances with huge highlight reel moments in them. And um, it's not last last year that his performance against Ireland was one of the best I've seen individually. Uh, I think maybe he's been a bit of a victim of his own kind of. Own standards in the past. He has had quiet games over the last year. I won't um, sugarcoat that. Um, Premiership final, he was particularly quiet. I thought, um, but I think you know nobody's no. We've seen nobody is a kind of automatic choice in this in this England side. Perhaps now, apart from Farrell with the captaincy and Gench. Um so they will. I think they will consider it um, with with if Lord, certainly more so if Laws is fit, but. I would certainly give him the benefit of the doubt. I, I I completely agree. In fact, we were touching on it there, Charlie, but the, the only phrase that I've written down when I was sort of thinking about Maratoje is just a victim of his own success. Shamati burst on the scene um, and started playing at a level that was such a high level that, that we we immediately all now have such high expectations, which we should have. But then if he has one quiet game, it's... It, it, him, him had game on Saturday by any stretch of the imagination, but perhaps he was just slightly below that very world class standard that we've expected of him. And yet, in that Ireland game of the Six Nations last year, he was phenomenal. Um, and you look at some of the Lions tests as well, he was phenomenal. And actually, for Saracens this season, we shouldn't overlook the fact that he has been excellent more often than not. Yes, he was also very quiet in that Premiership final last year. Um, but I, I just, I, I'm going to slightly disagree with Charlie there. I think I just can't see any scenario whereby Steve Borfett will drop Maratoge and, and I don't and I think he's right to not to as well especially if he's running the line out which is obviously such a sort of secretive probably the wrong word but an unseen area where we're not even really we privy to, to, to how, how that's run and how successful it's run uh, only the coaching staff and the players are privy to that and admittedly England did lose three line outs on um, uh, on their own throw on Saturday but again we don't know the machinations of that we don't know who necessarily was at fault only the coaching staff will know that from the from the sort of books that they put in place and the system that they put in place so just so just to kind of back up that point on carrying so Maratoji five carries and he's credited with two metres so that's a lot a lot of that is in heavy traffic clearly whereas Chesham more suited, more suited to those wide exchanges, and you got a big break. You got two big breaks, didn't he? One down the blind side off a potentially off Portfleet offload when he's when he's slide down the blind side, and then another is 
as Van Poorfleet sniped again. So he, he ended up with 49 meters from um, 11 carries, which obviously had a lot more eye catching. But it's only 12 tackles with no miss. Um, you had George with 10 carries, 10 tackles with no miss, and then anybody, anybody anywhere near that. And the only player anywhere near that was Ben Curry. He popped it with 13, 13 tackles with four miss. Um, so his output in there, and it'll be really interesting to see the, the rep numbers as well. I'm sure Atoji is very high on that um, Ringling because he's often in those middle pods hitting those rucks. Um, the, the unfussy stuff and the stuff that knits together the side, and I think he's he's in the thick of and calling the line out. We know how tough that is because it clearly takes time to get good at it because it's taken Maratoji a while to kind of settle into that job. And I think he's kind of admitted that himself but one thing I would say just in, in response to that point Charles has made there is we can tell it's well we can tell the line outs well called when they do they do what they did for Ellis Genge's try when they um, when they get the penalty for the ball and then they peel away from the ball that Genge scores a couple of places later that just is really clever and that's come from the strategy around the line out which is what Etoji is in charge of on the field yeah, I I just think it's a bit mad. This whole notion of dropping potentially you've only got a couple of potentially world class players in this thing side. Tom Curry is currently injured, Mara is the other thing. I, I think if you said to most test coaches if they had the option of sweating and toes that you might leave them out because of one one game where he wasn't there, they spell one invest, I think they'd probably laugh you out of the room. To be honest, his his six out of tens and seven out of tens are often better than most locks nine out of ten. And and so I think it's kind of crazy to even suggest that you would think to go elsewhere with him because he is so vital in some of what he does in his own seat that he's going to be a huge part of this Borfix side. And I think, yeah, I don't think there needs to be much more discussion about that. Let's jump to Cardiff in the first game of the Six Nations. We, we wondered if this might be a bit of a banana skin um, for Ireland to get to Cardiff facing Warren Gatland that are potentially rejuvenated. Wales and how wrong we were. That was pretty emphatic, wasn't it? Charles, I'll start with you. What did you like the most about Ireland's performance? Caelan Doris. Oh, quickly <laughs> becoming, <laughs> quickly, quickly becoming, you know, the, the best number eight in the world. He's been phenomenal at six for Leinster, but they sort of play a sort of dual number eight role in, in, in the leaps with, with Jack Conan. And then, my word, he just looks so at ease, so comfortable, so skillful, so intelligent, but also just so determined and so muscly and dynamic uh, and quick thinking every single time he gets the ball. He's a real, real handbook at the minute. I mean, he's the fulcrum of this island team. He's, he's the, he is what you mentioned about the glue binding everything together. He is that for Islanders, um, especially with an un- slightly more unsettled midfield with with, with, with regular inside centre Robbie Henshaw being available and, and McCloskey coming in who was excellent against Wales by the way um, but he is the sort of yeah the spearhead he spearheaded the Irish charge at, at, at Cardiff and, and Wales have no answer to it the, the, the discrepancy the difference between his performance and that of Toby Palatow, um a British Lion British and Irish Lion opposite him was stark real real stark and a sort of um an embodiment of where the two teams are at, really. A complete microcosm. It, sh- it shouldn't be lost. It, it, look, in the scoreline, obviously, is in fact the Carlin were way better. It, it shouldn't be lost that Ireland did have a bit of a wobble where 
the game management was was really quite off in terms of some of their decision making and some of their tactical approach and yet they still sort of rode that and came through it I, I think what I like about this Irish side so much is just that you know what you're getting you're getting a highly efficient consistent side whose error rate's pretty low whose pack work ferociously who when you see them going through those pick and go phases and the short pop phases sort of five ten meters up just knowing eventually that they're going to score they're going to find a way James Lowe being so smart with that intercept. Just, they're just so well oiled at the moment. That, and, and that's why they were most of our, I think they were all of our favourites for the title, weren't they? And also why the game next weekend when France go to Dublin is, is just so exciting. And Charlie, if you going to put you on the spot, if you, which way are you leaning for a winner in that game right now based on what you've seen last weekend? Ireland, if only because I think if they finish top, they're probably going to be, I think, even after the first weekend, I'm fairly certain that only one of my predicted six places in the table will be correct, <laughs> and that'll be Ireland at the top. Uh, no, I can just, I can just see, just you always, I think their, the, their phase play is just so relentless that they always seem, and actually difficult to defend against largely, although that, that second half period that you're talking about, Colsey, them going 27-3 up at half to, uh, in half an hour um, you felt that that could have been anything at that point um, and they just kind of they had a lot of the ball but um, Wales managed to, to kind of just hold fast a little bit so you wonder whether um, you wonder whether they kind of um, I, I, th- I think their, their, their phase play is good for a couple of tries a game and I think as it's that pack there's just it's the dynamism of that pack guys like Dan Sheehan now in the conversation yeah. for one of, being one of the world's best hookers, having just burst on the sea, Doris Van der, boring talking about Van der Fleer now because um, he's just every, <laughs> yeah, game, every game he's eight, eight, nine out of ten is carrying is just phenomenal. James Ryan, shout out to him, kind of persevered through a bit of a tricky patch in his career, maybe um, sort of became the fall guy for how Leinster and Ireland were getting out muscled in games against um, more muscular teams. Ironically, in England being one of them and, and South African position in URC, a big French opposition in, in the Champions Cup, now seems to have kind of um, settled into that role a little bit better. They're just really nicely balanced. And don't forget, they did that as a sustainable performance against Wales. They did that without Tiger Furlong, without um, Robbie Henshaw, and with um, a late. I wondered whether they might, when um, Jamison Gibson Park pulled out, wondered whether, they, wondered whether they might have gone with Craig Casey at nine just to maintain that. Um, same profile as scrum half they didn't Conor Murray came in um, and yeah still managed a really comfortable win that could have been going to be heavier yeah I was going to I was going to make that point as well I think the Gibson Park sort of withdrawn and how they've managed that is it, quite a statement actually because he's been so important to Andy Farrell's side and how how they sort of kept the momentum up and kept the tempo high with that face play approach and actually and it, they barely missed a beat I think that is that is really exciting for Ireland that they the sort of overcame that way quite comfortably and, and quite scary really for everybody else and Charles I need to ask you who you think is going to win in Dublin I assume given you're travelling everywhere that you're going to be there it's just my hunch is that right I am there I think after yesterday many people might think that Ireland will win comfortably I'm not sure that will be the case I do think there will be a French response after yesterday they will not be as indisciplined um, and they won't be as cold as they were in Rome yesterday, but I do think Ireland at home with how well 
they won last weekend and how well they've been playing recently and how innocent that team is and how well they know each other, they'll just about rip that on thing. Yeah, cannot wait for it. Game of the weekend, game game of the weekend, game of the tournament. I reckon I'll win it as well, and it can't come soon enough. Right, let's just wrap up with a couple of quick questions to finish. Uh, we'll be back in a sec. Okay, just to finish up, we've got a few more questions from readers that we want to stay through before we before we leave you until next week. Uh, and one from Manorobi, which I had about Twickenham, and then this was a point that I saw was picked up on it. I think a replica social media with a fan sort of going off about Twickenham just has no atmosphere and no noise. And, and the question was, Twickenham is no longer a fortress and while the team have to win and play better, how are the RFU addressing the issue of the distinct lack of atmosphere? Should they cut the corporate tickets and price of normal ones to appeal to a younger demographic? Which I think is actually quite an interesting point. And both of you, what was the atmosphere like on Saturday, Charles, at the start of the year? I thought the atmosphere was very good, actually. I thought the atmosphere was very good, and I, I thought it was noticeably improved from the autumn. Um, I think you could write an essay on uh, potentially the RFU's t- ticking things strategy, who should be getting those tickets, are there two room corporate guests, are, are there enough sort of day-to-day rugby fans and, and people who contribute at community level going to those matches? That, that's a different... That's a different story. The RFU are obviously trying to find the balance between making sure that those people are catered for, but also getting much needed revenue on the back of the COVID on the back of the COVID nineteen pandemic where they didn't host a game. Um, but also a slightly sort of um, left field point was that I thought the atmosphere was improved, and I spoke to people who who didn't enjoy that match, um, and it wasn't a sort of classic in terms of well, the skills and the and other than the do handband other than the tries. I wouldn't say that the, the game as a whole was necessarily a classic in terms of the, the skill level on show. There was a lot of kicking, which people often get frustrated with. But noticeably, set across seven tries, there was no use at the tier high. And I wonder if, sort of subconsciously, that has also added to the spectacle there, whereby if we'd have had exactly the same how the game played out again with each try check with the TMO, I wonder if people would have been coming away thinking that that was a, a lesser spectacle. Shall we say it, it was a, it was a great match, and I thought the atmosphere was brilliant, um, and the tries were outstanding. But there was a lot of kicking, there was a lot of stop starts. The scrum was a bit of a mess in the first half, and I just feel if people, because of the lack of TMO usage, whether that's been sort of quite quickly forgotten. Charlie, what did you make of it? I, th- I think that's a really, really, really good point from Charles because the first the first quarter or near the near the first quarter, when did Scotland? What minute did Scotland score it? Before that, before that, it had been pretty kind of yeah dominated by kicking exchanges, and you think it's was well, it going to be one of those turgid, edgy ones, and then it kind of exploded from there. But there were scrum scrum problems throughout. And Charles is spot on there. You came away thinking that was just a real that was like almost a breezy, a breezy entertaining game. That was good. That was good fun. Been asked about the somebody else mentioned the atmosphere to me this morning, saying it sounded more corporate than usual from somebody that was there. I didn't pick up on that, and I don't know whether that's me just being uh, blinkered to what I was doing, but I'm watching the game and having the ref mic on. And um, but no, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't pick up on that at all. But the um, certainly seemed more positive. Quite enjoyed the Steve Borthwick's quote played out over a montage of um, England playing like WWE, which is quite interesting. Um, Steve Borthwick's but, uh, certainly. 
Yeah, well, it, it felt yeah, like but that. it was just the players were on the field. It was it was just before yeah. kickoff. It was it was crazy. I was I wasn't there. It was in sort of Kevin Keegan s like they're gonna they're gonna have to go there and get a result. What was it? Was it, what was it no, it was, like? it was it was it's just you know we're gonna show we're gonna show fight. We're gonna we're gonna be a team to be proud of that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean I mean I'm all in if I'm an England fan. Um, getting ready to watch that. No, I did, I have to say I didn't pick up on it being rooted atmosphere at all i've seen that um video on it's about it's it's mainly for the blade game i can't take my dad anywhere sorry he's obviously not his dad just <laughs> yeah, a, yeah just a very good gag um okay yeah. maybe that's something to watch over the course of the tournament i just wanted to, i also had a couple a message from uh one on a different matter from a group of colorblind awareness about wales v ireland and how wales v ireland if you're colorblind is just an absolute nightmare because you just cannot make out what's going on with the red and green and how this and how this does affect quite a lot of people, like one in twelve men, one in two hundred women. I, I do wonder if I know World Rugby have sort of looked at this, and actually Mike Blair, the coach in Edinburgh, he's spoken out about this before. I do wonder if there is some way to address it. I don't know what that is. I'm not sure what the solution is, but I thought it was worth referencing because it does affect a lot of people. What are the, what are their respective alternate alternate strips? Where yeah. Wales black Wales black still and Ireland white? I think what yeah. I don't know if black, 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 black and white might be no better. I'm not sure. I'm not colorblind myself, but it would be great if, if the colorblind awareness group let us know what their ideal sort of color blend would be for Wales Islanders. Then uh, we, we could feed that back, of course. I was just saying, real real treat seeing Italy's alternate, oh, alternate strip. That was, go- that was gorgeous. A beauty. An absolute peach. That was that was that was very nice. Well, that's a that's a nice positive note to end the podcast up. Let's uh, let's leave it there. Right, that's it for today. A massive thank you to Charlie and Charles, as always. And the three of us are going to be back next week after the latest round of Six Nations action. Please keep your eye on the website for tons of content from the likes of Will Greenwood, Brian Moore, Gavin Mayers, and all of us as we build up to another weekend of matches. And also, please hit that subscribe button and let your friends know what a lovely time you've had listening to us every Monday. Until next week, see you then. Goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.